Hey, Justin. Yes, David. I've come up with a way to save the TV industry. And what is that? A podcast all about TV shows and the people that make them happen. Good. When are we going to start it? Ten seconds ago. This is TV Show and Tell. Welcome to Show 2, Season 2 in 2022 of TV Show and Tell, the podcast about how and why TV gets made. I'm David Bodicum. I'm a TV producer and games consultant from London. And I'm Justin Scroggy, an international TV consultant known as the Format Doctor, based in the UK. And in today's episode, we're taking a look at the role of commissioners, the people who decide which programmes get made. And our special guest is the former commissioner of Comedy Central UK, Chris Curley. Also, if you're interested in getting your own ideas onto the small screen or tablet or phone, we'll be starting the first in an occasional series about the basics of pitching. And we'll also be demystifying what those ratings numbers mean. But first, it's time for the catch-up. So Justin, any news of note? Well, last episode, we talked to those nice people from Marvel Media about Blown Away. They have a new show uh, that's coming out on the CBC in Canada called Best in Miniature. So the idea of this is people basically building miniature dolls' houses and decorating all the rooms and telling a story through that. And they are judged by not only a miniaturist but also an interior designer and it's very sweet and it, i mean it's one of those things where television sometimes is the best medium for certain things and the ability to look at something that's very small and show it in great detail is one of the things that tv can do well there's been a bit of an incident on the mass singer in the us which is on the fox network the Republican politician and attorney Rudy Giuliani was revealed to be the bear on the first episode of the new series, uh, which prompted uh, judges Ken Jong and Robin Thicke to leave the studio. Although uh, Giuliani's not the first politician they've had on the show. They've had um, Sarah Palin on before, for example. There's, there's such was this incident that effectively this has uh, been revealed before the episodes even got to air. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a, it's a risky move, but I guess if the whole point of the show is, you know, the surprise of who's under the mask, that is quite a surprise. <laughs> Talking of the States, NBC are about to launch their new show, The Courtship. It's going to be on NBC and also Discovery UK. And The Courtship is basically Bridgerton meets The Bachelor. <laughs> so it's a dating show, but set in the period and milieu of Jane Austen and where basically a duke is looking for a lady and the rituals of courtship are all drawn from that period of history. I'm sure it's going to be entirely historically accurate. Oh, I'm sure, just like Bridgerton was, yes. <laughs> not not at all hackneyed. Yeah. There's been a bit of a to-do on Twitter, believe it or not, Justin. No, surely. Yeah, there has. Netflix have announced a new show called Making Fun, where four guys from the maker community take ideas that children have come up with for inventions, and they get to use all their power tools and ingenuity to make these things come to life. 
the Twitterati have been saying, well, hang on a second. There's Ruth Amos's long-running YouTube channel uh, where she and her partner fabricate uh, kids' inventions, and that's called Kids Invent Stuff. Right. So there's a suggestion that the idea has been stolen. Mm. Now, one of the four bearded guys that's on this Netflix show, Jimmy DeResta, hasn't commented as far as I can see on the on the issue. However, he did on the same day that this, this blew up, retweet about seven different things that are happen to be the basic same idea. So, like kids inventors were a slot on Letterman. There were also a slot on the Ellen Show. Mm. There was a format called Whiz Whiz Bang Bang. There's another show called Let's Get Inventing, etc., etc., etc. Where effectively he's trying to, I think, say that this isn't really a new idea, and yeah. um, you know, neither is the kids inventors stuff one frankly yeah it's a tricky one but basically i mean just hearing it from what you said there would need to be a lot of very specific format beats that were common to both in order to be able to argue that one yeah i think that some of the issue is perhaps that it's not necessarily a new idea however if you're going to represent what they say is the maker community that these people that mm. that are hobbyist crafters of mm. of things like this would you not choose a, a slightly more diverse in, in all senses of the word set of people than four old bearded dudes yeah yeah that's true it'll be interesting given that that's a very negative argument in in social media whether the power of social media is sufficient to do what perhaps the law couldn't do on the other hand it might just be twitter getting cross (laughs) which is precisely why we've got the law (laughs) and now it's time for our interview with chris curley the former comedy central commissioner about his career in producing and buying programs And I'm pleased to say we're joined by Chris Curley now. Chris, thanks very much indeed for joining us. David, thank you for having me. So I've been riffling through your CV, and what an interesting CV it is. Um, <laughs> the words riffling in, and interesting. <laughs> in, many, in many different ways. You were used to be a sports reporter for the Los Angeles Times. That was actually, the Los Angeles Times was the thing that got me into TV. Ah. So I was at university, at the University of Sheffield, uh, doing journalism and there was a placement in our final year and this um we were all shouted out oh we've got a placement in the LA Times come and grab the email address at the end of the seminar I raced down the steps got it and got this really long email address for somebody at the LA Times and applied and then at Christmas uh, my final year I rang them up they'd never heard of me and then out of the blue they rang me up in February at the flat in Sheffield and said when do you want to come I was like what uh, yeah, come to LA, come with the LA Times, you want to do the sport? Okay, so I said, well, how about next month? Gave them dates, six weeks, and I went out to the LA Times and um, was there in my final term. There was the year Tiger Woods. I arrived when Tiger Woods won his first um, Masters. I arrived on Oscar night, uh, worked in the sports section because originally sport was, was going to be my thing. And then I realized I like sport too much to want to be in sport. Um, and was working in the entertainment section of the LA Times. Well, I was quite, I was quite bullshit because I went to the editor of the LA Times entertainment section, Oscar, his name was, right? And said, uh, Oscar, I didn't come 10,000 miles to file your cabinets. Said it very politely. Can I come out and, you know, come out and shadow some of your reporters? He went, you know what? Yes, you can. 
And um, I went out with a guy called Bob Welkos and we went to the film set of Apt Pupil, which was Brian Singer's uh, follow-up second film. His first one being The Usual Suspects. Mm -hmm. And I'm on the set of um, his film with Ian McKellen, uh, Brad Renfro and David Schwimmer. And I'm interviewing them on my 21st birthday. I thought, this is the life. (laughs) And then Schwimmer invited me to go and see Friends being recorded. Oh, no. So I went to see, because it was my birthday, so you can come and I'll get your tickets, right? So I went to see Friends being recorded, which was Uh um, the season finale, I think season three, when they're in the beach house and the long letter episode for Friends aficionados. And (laughs) what's what's great about the... um, uh, the the Schwimmer stories. I he was going out with Natalie and Brulia at the time, right? <laughs> it was Beth in Neighbours, mm. and I said to him, "Have you watched Neighbours yet?" Anyway, David Schwimmer said, um, "Oh no, she won't let me watch it." I said, "You've got to watch it. She's amazing in it." Cut to six months later, they've split up, David and Natalie, and she's out singing "Torn" about the breakup song. So mm. I kind of feel responsible <laughs> for that because he because he's he's watched he's watched Neighbours and, and gone that's and not he, very good I'm in the biggest show in the world she is traumatized because <laughs> she's really upset about and really liked him and I'm going out with David Schwimmer Ross from Friends she's so upset she has to sing about it she is torn and then if you watch the video the guy in the video is the bloke from Casualty Jeremy I think his name is he looks very much like David Schwimmer. I, yeah, so I feel like I was I'm responsible for their the breakup of their relationship and that very uh, popular hit record. You're doing this marvelous time in LA, and you're going to this, meeting famous people, seeing famous places. Why did you come back? Well, I was only there for six weeks, so it was only a placement, and I had to finish my um, I had to finish my degree off. But three months later, an advert came about for a job on the Sunday Show at BBC Manchester, and oh. I went for an interview with that. And God bless John Riley who was one of the producers and later a great producer of things like Danger, 50,000 Volts and loads kind of things, loads of great things. He said to me a couple of years later, it was the fact you'd been to the LA Times and you had a bit of a journalistic background, a bit of a story now, so that was different, you made that happen, that um, got me the job on the Sunday show. And that was my first proper job. So without the LA Times, maybe I wouldn't have got working on mm. the Sunday show and I was sat next to Peter Kay for three months before he was Peter Kay. Um, and and Peter, I've, st- I've still got your VHS player he gave me. You've got Peter Kay's VHS player. Well, we bonded over like just TV stuff and title sequences, and Peter would like had kept a whole library of title sequences using his VHS player recording onto another VHS player, and we would just bond to like Bergerac and Monkey and all these kind of things, right? And um, I said, I haven't got a VHS player. He said, I've got a spare one. You can have. <laughs> He said, you can have it. And he and I went, yeah, sure, fine. And remember, this PK wasn't PK then. He was just Peter. And he gave it to me. And I, I had that for years in, in in the room until DVDs arrived. I mean, that job, that working on the Sunday show, live, BBC Two, every Sunday, was so exciting. You know, and also I think with the people, I'd found my people, you know, people working on the show were fantastic. And the people that I met on that show are still my friends now, my close friends of 25 years, you know, I've been godfather to their kids and stuff like that. And and, and I was so lucky at the start of it to um, be surrounded by such good people. I mean, Andrew Newman, who runs Spellthorn and was very close in the creation of Ali G, was the uh, news producer. 
And I remember the first ideas meeting and Gary, had, Gary, the series producer, right? Everybody bring 10 ideas each. And I'm going, oh good, okay, 10 ideas, all right. 10 ideas each and we're going to talk about and da, da, da. And there's like five, three or four different tables of us. Andrew Newman got on the table in the middle of the canteen and started spinning everything anybody ever said into a TV idea. I went home that night going, I'm never going to be able to do that. I can't do this. It was amazing. He spun everything into something that was funny, that could be on the telly. Oh, my word. I can't. How am I going to think like that? I can't think like that. This is not for me. And then I realized weeks, months, years later, you can learn it. I'm not expected to know it as the, as the runner. But, you know, that was that moment that he created was a great inspiration to me and a lesson of ideas don't just magically appear. You can think of them. You can learn how to think of them. Mm. And I think that's that's a really important lesson when you're dealing with less experienced members of the team who really daunting process delivering your ideas. It's really scary. I think that's why Gary was good. And he made us do loads of them so it become less scary. So you mentioned Gary there. So is that Gary Monaghan? It is Gary Monaghan, yeah. So so you worked with him on uh, subsequent shows, two of which I'm, I'm big fans of, Top Branco and Hercules. Yeah. Now, Hercules was, was quite the thing. Because, <laughs> oh, I mean, like, they, they, they had these tasks that involved things like take a whole pyramid of bricks and then rebuild the whole pyramid of bricks just sort of 10 metres away to the other side. So yeah. effectively pointless tasks that that just proved people's endurance. Um, so what was your role on that show? I was initially like casting the Hercules for that show and going around the country trying to find these uh, guys to be the new Hercules and their support teams. People who could actually do these things. And if you remember the show, we had um, five times Winter Olympic biathlete Mike Dixon, uh, cross-training champions, uh, national fell runners, open water swimming champions, things like that. And then we're, we're shooting in Devon for a month. And I was just going to be running the casting and doing and, and create and producing the stories, really, the sporting competition, going back to the LA Times and the sport. I understood sport and I understand the narrative of a sports story, which is what Hercules was about and then um Kate Shepherd was one of the PDs and went down ill and Gary came up to me and went you're having a crew now I'd never done it before he went you're gonna have a crew and lead and do one of the crew okay all right and I had this fantastic cameraman really experienced guy Mike and he went listen you follow the stories don't worry about what it looks like leave that to me I went fine and um we did it and uh, that first morning, I didn't. I was like, okay, we'll go here, go here, go there. Wasn't really sure. And it won't only until I talked to Greg McDonald and I did an interview with him. And I kind of made him cry, not deliberately, but I asked some emotional questions that I would, knew would work. And then I thought, oh, okay, I know what this is now. I know, I know what I'm doing now, kind of thing. And it was a real moment for me. And then by the end, after about three or four days, I was getting all the major stories to lead on the show and when you know I, when Mike Dixon went into hospital um, mm. you know I made sure we filmed that even though the hospital people weren't very keen and I went well <laughs> if if worst case scenario this is not live but we need to follow the story and that was the, you know it's my journalistic instincts kicked in and of course uh, Mike Dixon came back the following day and spoiler alert he won the whole competition you know, I was involved in everything that from the early development, the development of the games, you know, what we're going to do with the hoops of Odysseus, you know, what the, what the costumes are going to look like. I remember uh, Nathan was um, 
producing the event and he tried this kit on and he had, he had the kit they were going to wear I went, it was slashed to the nipple and he went all right fella look at this this is great gary signed this off and i i uh i went around and went, he can't they can't wear that if they wear that no one's going to talk about anything else <laughs> and i raced into gary but you can't sign that off you just can't and fortunately we got something a bit more charities of fire i was and it was like a great for me as a producer, I suppose it's my first proper producing thing. It was a real learning process of how, how to finesse and try and try and tell those stories. And of course, you know, it's a BBC Three show. It launched BBC Three, and um, when it first arrived from and changed from BBC Choice. Now you have something in common with the very first guest we had on TV Show and Tell, Alex Horn, in that you've both been involved with making tasks for Big Brother. Well, Series 7 was the year uh, Nicky Graham was on and, and um, Pete, uh, who, who had Tourette's, who won the show. And Channel 4 thought of you as their favourite ever series. Um, tasks start... Well, that was the tasks we had there were like um, the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory task of the Golden Ticket housemate. And as a task team, when we got told that when Nicky Graham was going back in the house, if you remember, Nicky had been voted out and was going back in. And we were kind of a, not happy about it <laughs> because we were like... Oh, but that's breaking the rule of Big Brother, and once you you decide, it's. Da, 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 da. But of course, you know, it created great story for Nikki to go to go back in. But I do look back and go, was that a time you know Big Brother really started to change? You know, the purity of it had been had started to be lost in terms of of what it was. And you have to remember what Big Brother is is was it was an unpopularity contest. You know, I, I remember doing the casting auditions for that show. And it was sad, actually, because the the group of people there, you know, they'd hug you at the end of the first 10 minutes you had with them. And like, it was like the first time anyone had ever recognised them and said, you're all right. And you were just putting them through to the next stage. And I noticed talking to people, a lot of them, uh, not a lot of them, but there was smattering that I remember, were talking about, oh, I wanted to do something for the summer or it's a job. And for them, it's a job, you see. And also the housemates knew what you were doing. And they would amazingly predict uh, what you think was happening. And of course, we would change them. Oh, this is when they do the assault course task. And so I think the education and evolution of reality contestants has progressed around that time where, you know, they, they'll tell you now, I know what I'm going to do next. Screen time, screen time. Because they know they need to earn their screen time. Mm. So... The the hand of the producer is uh, needs to be carefully placed, shall we say, in those circumstances, mm. and and I think that's that's for me when it started to happen. And by I got by the time we got to doing My Little Princess in twenty twelve and Geordie Shaw in twenty thirteen, the people going for these shows were changing. Yes, it became a viable career choice now. It's a job. It you know it's a job. Then they can see it as a their job. You know that's different when someone's saying, "Oh, you're producing them," and go, "Okay, when are you? What's happening with blah? What's happening with blah?" But oh, I'm going to save that for day two, and then I'm going to do this. <laughs> it, it it it's different. I don't like it, to be honest, and I haven't really done that kind of stuff since. What What's great about producing tasks on Big Brother is, especially when you're the voice of Big Brother and the scripting you have to learn, is you can't make a mistake. You make a mistake, it creates story in the house. It undermines Big Brother to the housemates. If there's a comma in the wrong place, if there's a, a an ambiguity in the in the instruction in the house, it causes problems. 
So as a producer, it gives you a great lesson and skill set of scripting and of preparation, of making everything's correct and working and is right. And it don't get me wrong, it does go wrong. But, you know, it gives you that discipline and that lesson to take on into other shows, which I have definitely done. I've always encouraged people to do it if they've if they got offered a job on it. I said, do tasks. Tasks the best fun you can have. But it's, I think it's the best skill set you can take with you that gives you more uh, diversity in what you can potentially do afterwards. And if I'm hiring, I'll always, you know, if somebody's done Big Brother tasks, I'll know what kind of attitude and character they've got because it's hard. And we'll have more from Chris later. But now it's time for the first in our guide to pitching. So whether you're just curious about how pitching works or maybe you've got an idea of your own that you'd like to pitch, then this is for you. So, Justin, what do we actually mean by a pitch? A pitch is the meeting or the presentation where you present your format to a buyer, which is usually a broadcaster or a streamer in the hope that they will give you the money and the green light to go and make it. Essentially, what you're trying to do is to get the idea of the show across to the buyer. Um, And they want to see passion, and they want to see confidence, and they want to see clarity. Because remember, if you can't explain the idea to the buyer in a couple of minutes, then a viewer is going to struggle to get it in a couple of minutes as well. You want to engage the buyer so that they actually feel involved with the show because this isn't the end of the relationship with the broadcaster, it's the beginning. So you need to get them on board and make them feel part of the project. And trust is another big thing as well. So it's not sufficient that they like the idea. They've got to trust that you can deliver it on time and on budget and as you described it. And the other last thing, obviously, that you're trying to do with the pitch is to try and close the deal though these days it's something where you're just trying to get to the next stage the thing that's happened i find with the massive increase in the number of independent companies particularly in the uk is that perhaps in the past say sort of 30 years ago there might be one person or one or two people that are making the decision now there's like almost like a whole department which may have sort of an editor of entertainment let's say then the sort of commissioners as a sort of second layer and then there might even be assistant commissioners as a third layer it i used to be a management consultant and there used to be always this uh, um, slightly <laughs> 1970s phrase of pitching to your boss's boss it's not just the person you're working with but they then have to go on and sell the idea upwards up the chain yeah i mean i think you're absolutely right it, it's not so much true in in a lot of other countries. Uh, it is possible to get into the room with the decision maker, but particularly in the UK, it's quite rare. So usually you're pitching to the person who's going to go away and talk to their team and then decide what to take to their boss. You're quite right. And that's another good reason for your pitch being very, very focused. You're providing people with the script with which they're going to take your idea and maybe mention it in a couple of minutes to their boss. I like the phrase that a pitch is a structured conversation um, because that's what it is. It isn't just you talking. We have a slightly trickier thing to do sometimes if we're pitching a game show and we're trying to sort of run through a game show and Mm. prove how it works because we also have to almost put on a miniature theatrical event with contestants and hosts. Yes, absolutely. If you're any kind of game, you've got to play it in the room. 
you won't get any further if you just describe it. And actually, many game shows don't sound all that great until you play them. And certainly all the classic game shows that we know about have been played in the room, sometimes with very, very rudimentary pieces of equipment, you know, cardboard boxes, pieces of paper, dice, whatever it might be. The other thing you've got to be careful of is that the commissioning editor doesn't lose too badly. <laughs> so you need to pitch your questions um, or whatever it might be uh, in such a way that they do brilliantly. Otherwise, you, you are in deep trouble. The trouble is in television, we tend to kind of mystify the idea that we're pitching an idea for a product. Um, and I hate the idea of product and content and everything, but that's what it is. It isn't really any different to the classic sales technique where you identify the buyer's need, you show how that product satisfies that need, and then you try to close the sale. I find it's like a Venn diagram of like the show that you want to make the show that's possible to make within the budget and the time available and the, the show that they might have a slot for in their schedule. Yeah. And then you, you have to try and find something that goes in the intersection of all of those three circles. Well, when I first started in television, I sincerely believed that a good idea was a good idea. And regardless of cost, slot, casting or anything else, it would somehow bulldoze its way into prime time. And like most producers, I've learned over the years that you can't sell a show to someone who doesn't have a slot or a budget or a need for something in that genre. And that means you need to understand the buyer that you're pitching to. You need to understand their channel. You need to understand their personal likes and dislikes. And you need to understand in advance how the show that you're bringing is going to light up a light bulb in their brain that says, oh my God, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Finally, in this sort of quick overview, the slightly frustrating thing about pitching is that it's, it could be something that gives you an immediate uh, commission, or it could be the start of a very drawn out two or three year development process where you still haven't quite got over the line and you keep coming back with improved or different versions. And then at the end of that process, it may still not get commissioned. We all find that process of dragging it out very frustrating. The truth is that, generally speaking, formats get better in the process. You know, uh, one of my shows, Chef in Your Ear, we took it out in 2009, I think it was originally. We were out in our commissioning editors. They didn't want it. It went back in the drawer. We got it out of the drawer two years later. And in that process, in that gap, you tend to forget bits of it that aren't relevant and you remember the bits that are relevant so that by the time you're pitching it again it's a better cleaner simpler more focused show so when I'm in those longers in between I try to use them I'm doing that at the moment with the show for Netflix and I'm trying to use this gap to simplify it to simplify the scoring to cut down the number of rules and to keep in the foreground of my mind the things they said at the last pitch meeting so that I make sure that I go back having actually answered the questions that they raised because they know their audience. When I open old files that contain ideas that I've had in the past, I sort of go, oh, actually, they were right, weren't they? Yeah. It's, it's annoying, but you know, if, if you didn't get over the line, it, it probably was your fault that you, you didn't do quite enough. Yeah, but there's still something there. And if you can look at it with fresh eyes, and just take the best of it. 
the important thing if you have a bad pitch and again we'll talk about that in the future but if you have a pitch that doesn't work is to listen and to take away as much of it as you can absorb all the criticism hear uh, what didn't land and either go away and redevelop it or at the very least keep the door open for the meet for the next meeting there's always a point in a pitch where you know you've lost them and everything you're doing from now on is about getting another meeting with another show it's how you leave gracefully with dignity and with humor and get them so that the next time you ring up they'll take the meeting So that's a quick overview of pitching. We're going to be going into more detail in the weeks and months ahead. So if there's any specific areas you'd like us to cover, contact us on the Twitter handle at TV Show Podcast. And now we're going back for the rest of our interview with Chris Curley about his insights into the commissioning process. In 2018, uh, you became commissioning editor for Comedy Entertainment at Comedy Central UK. Yes, and it's a no, it's a, it's one own channel, but is it probably also a channel that's somewhat having to be a bit choosy about what it invests its money in? What was going on there just before I arrived? They didn't have the funding to do what they really wanted to do and what anybody wanted to make. But that's true everywhere, frankly, wherever you go. But I think that started to change in 2017 with shows like they were with Joel and Nish that they did and uh, going around the world. They picked that up and um, Your Face or Mine was doing well in 2017. So, you know, Louise Holmes and Jill Hoffman there were changing it. And I think they smartly saw that you need to do original, distinctive shows that stand out if you're not going to do very much. But when I went for that job, I really wanted it because I felt like I was ready for it and everything that I'd done. And the direction and conversations that we had were like, okay, well, this feels like I could do something here. And my, for me, my my key thing about that was the stuff that Channel 4 were doing in the late 90s and early noughties. You know, Star Stories, Friday Night Projects, uh, Bad Robots, Trigger Happy, original, distinctive, comedic voices, really smart and silly stuff coming through. And that was the direction of we of travel uh, that we wanted to find and, and kind of do. And so this opportunity came up and we are, we are, you know, I'm really proud of, you know, the two and a half years I had and the stuff we kind of got away and the way that we did it actually. Um, for example, we didn't put briefs out deliberately. We don't believe in them. I don't believe in briefs. The reason I don't believe in briefs is I don't think I get anything new. That brief goes out to same 70 odd companies who you get, very similar ideas. And three months later, you go off them. Somebody changes job and all that work and goodwill's wasted. And you don't get anything. I don't believe you get anything original out of a brief. That was important that we tried and went, listen, here's what we like. Here's what we're looking to do. Here are the people we like. Come to us and, and, and tell us what you want to do. Because commissioning's easy. Producing is hard. Developing is hard. But commissioning is easy. Commissioning is diary management. Commissioning is betting with other people's money. You're, you're better betting on other people's money if you know what you're buying, how it's made and how you do it. And I think it's very important in commissioning to have a real in-depth knowledge of how people make a show and what it costs to make a show and what the process is to develop and nurture a show from development. 
it, it sounds like sucking eggs, but it's not necessary. I can tell you some experiences that I've had where, and I'm sure everybody can, where that gap in the knowledge causes problems and issues that are unnecessary. And I think for me, I hope that I was able to streamline some of those issues because I've been in those situations before and wanted to make sure that we get to concentrate and spend our time on making the show better, not things we can all see coming. Because there was something on your resume that really made me so go, (gasps) which was you said that you were dealing with 750 proposals from 150 different companies. So, I mean, that just goes to show people listening to this podcast now going, I've got a really, really good idea. And like, why why are these people not making themselves available to listen to my fabulous idea? That's the competition that you're already up against in terms of like the number of regular companies that are already knocking on your door. That's Comedy Central, right? 151 different companies came in to see me in 18 months. And they've come in more than once, obviously, as well. You know, I've, I've had, and I'm sure you have, David, and I'm sure everybody, people listening to this have, of I had an idea I sent into somebody at a major channel and they replied to me nine months later saying no. I'd forgotten I'd pitched it. And that process of even a quick no is important. So we put in a pl- in a process whereby we kind of said, we're going to get back to you in two weeks. And I put in a, a little council, shall we call it, of younger members of our team to really interrogate your treatments when they came in. You'd have a meeting with me or Ed. You'd say, we go, oh, we like that. There's something in that. Send it in, work it up. Let's see what we do. That would come in every Friday. We would have it, go through 10 ideas a week and I'd get the feedback and stuff. And I've been around the block. And what's great for me is, you know, they would hear ideas with fresh eyes that I may think are really old, right? And make me see it differently. But they're experts in marketing and branding, digital and, and, and press. And, it's about as, and they know the brand really well. So can we take these things forward? And what that was, was giving constructive feedback quickly to the teams and then taking to the production companies and then getting them through the process of development and production quicker. Now, it wasn't as fast as I'd like it. At times it was, at times it wasn't, because I've still got bosses who need to sign stuff off and go, why are you doing that? Why do you want to do that? And that suddenly just takes time. When you're not doing very much, some shows need nurturing. Uh, to find the right people or the right cast or try out the right games or the right style if you're going to invest the money that you've got to invest when you don't do very much. And I think, you know, comedy and entertainment does need nurturing because it is hard to deliver something that no one's ever thought of or seen of before and present it as a coherent, funny, entertaining content. But it's expensive and it's risky and they're the challenges. So when people are coming in with... 151 ideas and they all think they're the best what I would say is from being on the other side of the desk I've learned so much from listening to ideas is that when we think of ideas we go you know will people watch this yes they will right and and will this be good yes it will be good because of this but I think a channel here they're not the first two questions a channel hears or wants answered when they hear an idea when they want to hear an idea there are two things first of all I think they want to understand it You've had it in your head for months, years. I'm hearing it for the first time. And a lot of the time, I don't even understand it. Even from your mouth or off the page. And the second thing, and this is the most important thing, so it probably should be the first thing, is the looking at the idea through the perimeter of how do I get an audience to this in the first place? Is that the biggest mistake that people make? They come up with something that's really quirky, but it's so quirky that people wouldn't really watch it. 
not necessarily quirky. I think quirky is good. Otherwise, the mass singer might never have happened. Um, the biggest mistake I think is is explaining to the commissioner why this is good for them, how you're going to get an audience. Well, you need to tell them first because that's the bit they're telling their bosses. Because the commissioner can say no, they can't say yes, and you want them to be able to go to whoever does say yes with the right Chinese whisper of why this show should happen. Because that's what the person saying yes is doing. Because invariably, the person saying yes has never made a show, developed a show, created a show, or ran a show. So they don't understand necessarily everything that you're going through as a producer. What they want to be able to understand is, oh, how am I going to get an audience to this? Do you think um, commissioners are a bit too hands-on these days? Not necessarily. Because some people do need hand-holding. Some people don't. You know, it's, it's the commissioner's money. It's art. It's not a gift. It's not a favour. You know, we're responsible for the right spend on that. So sometimes, as a commissioner, you need to you need to reassure them. You need to listen to them. It's about having that relationship. If they've got a terrible idea, well, I think the best relationships for me were like if if there was an idea and they they we'd have talked about an idea. Oh, can you try that? And then they said they tried it and explained why it hadn't worked. That's fine. Well, that's 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 brilliant. It's a great. That's how the relationship should be because it's a collaboration to find the best thing. Commissioning the back between commissioning and producing is is not brooding, but talking. And I I think that you've got to understand the commissioner's position. I understand it much better because when you're coming in as talk about those seven hundred and fifty ideas and one hundred and fifty one different companies, you don't know how many people they've seen that week. You don't know they're coming into that meeting and going, "Oh, please be good." Please be good. Please have a good idea. Please, please have an idea. I don't have to pretend. I kind of uh, don't. Want, I don't want to hurt your feelings. <laughs> you know. Please have something I can take away, or let me hear something that's pitched really well. You know, and or you don't know what blah and blahs asked me to do, or what here's going here, and we might be doing that, and this talent won't do this anymore, so we're not happy with that. All those things are going on that you can't know about that affect your decision about why I'm going to take this idea forward or not. I always felt the job for me was always to make sure people kept coming back in. And if I'm competing with E4 or Channel 4 or BBC or whatever, ITV, Sky, I want to make sure you keep coming back. I know I'm down in the food chain if I was at Comedy Central, but I want you to see you coming at least a bit sooner before you went to Dave. Um, now we're moving into the uh, section of the interview that I've listed down as anecdotes. <laughs> claim to fame you have on your CV is that you invented Richard and Judy's legendary quiz, You Say We Pay. Well, let me tell you about that. So when Richard and Judy were on this morning, uh, they had midday money, right? Which was the simplest, easiest, stupidest quiz show ever. So when they moved to Channel 4 to do the launch show, great bunch of people, but they brought on an entertainment team. And because I'd done shows like No Win, No Fee, they said, Chris, you can think of the new midday money. So there was a few brainstorms, and you say we pay was one option. And one option we piloted, and I thought of, was Richard and Judy's threesome. <laughs> I thought, oh, come and join us. We're going to play threesome after the break. Edgy, <laughs> edgy Channel 4. So the idea, the game for threesome was all the answers are either Cork, York, or Bjork. Oh, okay. And we did it in the pilot, and it worked to treat. Right, because Simon was quite happy about it because only you know, people only got about five right, and that was well within the prize funding budget. And he said, "Listen, go away for the next week and see if you can think of twenty more." And so I went away, and I came in two days later. I went, Simon, I I can't think of anything else that's as good as that. And so, kind of by default, it became "You Say We Pay." 
Well, yeah, Richard was fun. Richard at the uh, rap part, at the Christmas party, Richard compared launching the show to storming the beaches of Normandy. <laughs> and I, I said to somebody next month, is he, is he comparing launching this Channel 5 daytime entertainment magazine show to defeating Hitler? <laughs> and he, he, they said, yes, he is. I went, yeah, I thought I heard that too. <laughs> And so you know that was that Richard was that was Richard was Richard that was two thousand and two. So there's, there's a couple of uh, shows that you said that uh, I should ask you about because you, you've got stories about them. Oh, uh, so one was uh, Battle of the Dads. Battle of the Dads. This was a Gary Monaghan show at, at Radar in two thousand and four, five, something like that. So ten year old children choosing which games their dad would play against other dads. My bigger, my dad's bigger than your dad, basically. And we had. Um, Crichton from Red Dwarf hosting it, Robert Llewellyn. And oh my word, the studio record. The studio record was so long on this Channel 5 pilot that the mums who had come along to support their husbands and kids, they left. (laughs) (laughs) So much for the support. They were like, this is too long, we're going home. This is is like half... and, And yeah, it was... Uh, that was I just remember. I just remember that. I remember that, and then Andrew Maxwell was doing the warm up, and he was just slagging everything off to the audience. <laughs> and I had to go up to Andrew. And went, Andrew, you're not going back on. You can't slag it off. And what was I'm gonna? You know, I am a I am sentimental uh, fool. Uh, but what was lovely about that? I got a lovely note from Daniel and Bernie back in the office when we finished the recording, saying they'd had a fantastic time and how it really brought them together as a father and son. Oh. And, you know, that does go back to why I do it. Creating those moments that you have stories for that are fun. And that sounds really soppy. But whether it's you watching it and I can provide something that you're distracting from the rubbishness of your of what's going on in your life. And for half an hour, I can make you laugh two or three times out loud and make you enjoy something. Or if you can come on the show and have a life-changing experience, whether that's winning six grand for a new shed that you've always wanted or having this, you know, a paternal relationship improved upon, then that's the power of what we do. And that's the importance of what we do and the influence of what we do and why I love doing it and why I've always wanted to do it and why I've been doing it since I was 18 and I'm now 27 years later still trying to do it. Now, I'm going to launch my own production company now. I am doing right now, and I'm on the uh, the Indie Labs Accelerator Scheme for um, production companies in West Yorkshire because I haven't made the show I want to make yet, and that's what I, that's what's driven me to do it. And for me, more important than the shows that I make are the way that I make them, and we're all responsible for that. We're all responsible when we reply to an email in a timely and prompt time frame we're all responsible about how we thank each other how we communicate to each other how we deal with each other on issues of representation of inclusion of well-being of pay security of how recruitment practices i think are appalling demanding minimum two credits for casting researchers uh, or must have this skill i'd have never got through stuff and had the very diverse career that i have because we're narrow particularly in entertainment and non-scripted comedy we are narrowing down and pigeonholing our talent base far too soon in the process, which is making our shows less good. And that's happened in the last 10 years. It's something I'm deeply passionate about. It's boring, but it's important. If we're going to encourage people to 
stay in the industry because you're competing with social media, gaming, all other kind of things they can do where they get paid better, treated better on longer contracts. And you're not bringing new younger people in because they don't think it's for them. The broadcasters need to take the lead, but the production companies have to do better in how it treats its freelance workforce, honestly, and just tell them stuff and communicate with them. That's kind of the main issue for me because all the things lead to issues of mental health and well-being and commitment. And um, yeah, that's that's gone me in a bit of a soapbox rant, but it's it's got to change. It's not good enough, David. It really isn't. And hopefully I can do my little bit to try and to try and change that in how we and I will conduct ourselves. Fantastic. Well, we really look forward to seeing how your new indie performs. And uh, when you get a first commission, maybe you can come on and uh, I will. tell us about I've it. I've got my big whiteboard in front of me. Hopefully, it's one of those. There's 40, 50 ideas up on there. And um, hopefully, it is one of them. Fantastic. Well, Chris Kelly, thanks so much indeed for coming on to TV Show and Tell. Thanks, David. And Chris will be back for our show and tell segment at the end of the show. But now it's time for a jargon buster segment. And this time we're going to be looking at the word ratings. I think most people understand that ratings are some kind of number that judge how many people are watching a TV show. But what do those numbers mean and where do they come from? My understanding, Justin, is that there's uh, sort of different systems for different countries. So hmm. let's go to say that the US and the UK have got different systems. Uh, our board of ratings is called BARB, and effectively they have a, a small number of households that have these special boxes that live in their room. And when people come in and out of that room, they press a button on a remote control, and that then means that they take that sample of households and multiply it up to the entire country and that's how we get an estimate for how many people are watching the show uh in nielsen which is the u.s ratings board yeah they have forty thousand homes so there's lots more that covers about a hundred thousand people why why are these numbers so low because it seems ridiculous that the entire ratings industry <laughs> revolves around these five thousand three hundred households well, to be honest, that's a that's a kind of a mathematical conundrum that you probably know the answer to, and I don't. I was curious, so I did look into it. So, according to Barb, okay. the way it works is that if they wanted to halve the error, they would have to have four times as many households. So it sort of becomes exponentially more expensive. Yeah, I mean, I think ratings serve slightly different purposes. So, I mean, for, with Nielsen, a big part of Nielsen is um, tracking the adverts, um, or at least traditionally it was. American television has always been far more commercially driven than the UK, which was because that's how it began as a commercial exercise. So a lot of the primary interest is for advertisers to know whether their adverts are landing, uh, how many people are watching them, and to what extent the show around the adverts is delivering the audience that they want. Yes, apparently there's this, this sort of number called C3, which is a, a code for the average number of minutes of adverts watched. Mm. <laughs> so although yeah, it's a byproduct that you can kind of work out how many people are watching the program, yep. as you say, it, it's um, really the number of uh, minutes of adverts that the advertising buyers are interested in. Yeah. Of course, you know, in today's world, things are slightly different because on the one hand, digitally, 
um, when people are watching digital television, we can collect a great deal more data and that data can be a lot more granular. On the other hand, we have a situation where a lot of the streamers are very secretive about who's watching and how many people watch an episode or a series or whatever. Um, and people do a lot of retro engineering because they won't release the figures. Well, they've got a little less secretive uh, oh. in recent years. So Netflix have launched a website, uh, which is top10.netflix.com, where you can look at 10 most popular films, say, or 10 most popular series. That's a bit better, but you want to know what the bottom 10 are, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> it's tricky because as program makers, you know, we want to know not only who watched the program, but what they liked about it and what the ebb and flow of an episode is, because it's incredibly helpful to know who was watching at which point in your show and which point people switched off or tuned in. And apparently it, there's a sort of a bit, a bit of an element of fight club about this, okay. because if you're, if you're one of the Barb panel, you're not allowed to tell anybody. Right. Uh, that's, that's one of the conditions, yeah. yeah. So because they don't want any broadcasters finding out who's watching with one of these special boxes because then they can start marketing right. uh, at them to sort of, you know, get special leaflets or adverts through the door. Or... But I remember doing a series for Discovery in Canada and we brought the commissioning editor into the development week that we did at the production company. And what was so fascinating was that she knew her viewers so well and she was able to sit there and say yes my viewer would like that no my viewer would feel talked down to if you did that and so on and so on and it was actually an incredibly helpful and powerful way of developing a show because we don't do it so often we sit in production companies and we do not think about who we're making it for we think about what we're trying to make and having somebody in the room who is representing your viewers is really fascinating and quite humbling, actually, as a, as a creator. Does that not mean, though, that you're slightly limiting the show to the viewers you've already got and not the viewers that you potentially could have? Yes, to a certain extent, um, and you need to be aware of that. But you know, given that you're talking about you know, the whole of the Discovery viewership, I think you'd be happy to have a percentage of them, <laughs> to be honest with you. So the way that uh, Nielsen ratings work in the modern era is quite clever. They get people to wear these things called portable people meters, a bit like pages that you sort of carry around right. uh, on your belt or whatever. And then these things listen out for hidden tones yeah. as a broadcast as part of the TV show. So if, if they can sort of detect a certain pattern of musical notes, it knows that you've, you're starting to listen to the beginning of a particular program, right. and it will log that in the memory. So for any crime writers that are listening, this is the most spectacular way of checking an alibi. <laughs> but now Chris Curley has a cautionary tale as he brings something for our show and tell segment. So we're back with Chris Curley and... Uh, and I see you're holding a piece of paper with you. I am. It's it's a flyer. It's a show I made called uh, Britain's Most Extraordinary Dancer for Sky One. It was a one-off special for Sky One, and we made a pilot for VH1 in America six months later. But that flyer, we were doing the casting tour, going around the provincial nightclubs of Great Britain, searching for that dancer you see in a nightclub, 
who you look at and think, what the f- are you doing, right? <laughs> it was the search to kind of find the real David Brent. So we were going to right. lots of different flyers, and I need to advertise we were coming. So I got this flyer, bespoke flyer designed from uh, a place in, in uh, Shoreditch. I said to the uh, designer, can you in- insert white box here? And the idea by that was I was going to write, the person we were going to would write in the day and time we would be there. You just put in, just do an insert white box here and we can fill that in. Fantastic, great, can we? Cut to about a week later, 10 days later, the huge box of flyers turn up. And I'm and I'm going around the office, only small office, going, oh, the flyers are here. I'm really excited about the flyers. The flyers here, we've all seen the thing. It looks great. It's going to be fantastic. It, I open the flyer and in text, in the gap where the white box is, says, insert white box here. <laughs> and that was a lesson in tv i have taken ever since for the last 20 it was 2004 that nearly 20 years assume nothing assume you may have been clear you may have sat with the person you may have explained it you may have showed it you may have religiously told them what you want to expect and what you need to happen assume nothing insert white box here well um yes assume nothing that's a great uh, lesson for life and for, for life in television chris thank you very much david thanks for having me And now it's the time of the week where the whole world stops for just a few moments while we play the game known as Fake or Format. This week, I'm going to give Justin two programme pitches. One is real and the other one I completely made up about half an hour ago. So let's go. Here is the first one. Okay. And this is called, and I'm going to try and get this right so I don't annoy any anybody from Northern Europe. It's called Iso Kalanpura which in English means the big wheel of fish. This ran on Finnish television from 1959 to 1981. Members of a village are nominated by their peers to win prizes of food. Answering questions about Finnish culture, each correct answer adds an increasingly large tub of fish to a modified cartwheel, which they then spin at the end of the game to select their prize. That's the first one. And the second one is called Wheel of Fugitives. Mm-hmm. Mug shots of 12 people are placed on a wheel, which is then spun by a police officer. Wherever the wheel lands, the police officer reads out the details of the selected fugitive. Uh, then members of the public can win a bounty of $3,000 if they provide information leading to the arrest of the lucky winner. Wow. Wow. So we have the big wheel of fish, or we have wheel of fugitives. Right, okay, gosh. They both sound plausible and implausible at the same time, so congratulations for that. <laughs> good, very pleased. <laughs> yeah, um, I've done quite a lot of work in Finland one way or another, um, so I am aware that there is um, a certain quirkiness to the programme making. The Wheel of Fugitives, I didn't quite understand. What's the actual game in The Wheel of Fugitives that you said? It's not, I don't think it's a game. It's it's a feature. I suppose it's a bit like Crime Watch, but with right. a game show element to it. Right, I see. Um, well, I think that I'm going to say the finished show, Big Wheel of Fish, is the show. Okay, and the wheel is spinning. 
and it's spinning and it's coming to say that that is the wrong answer i'm afraid god <laughs> not again <laughs> The correct answer was Wheel of Fugitives. It's run by the Escambia County Sheriff's Office, uh, which is sort of in the very northwest corner of, of Florida. And they put up the episodes up on YouTube. Right here from your Escambia County Sheriff's Office, we present you with... Wheel of Fugitives! Wanted Wednesday here at the Escambia County Sheriff's Office and time to spin the wheel. Yep. Okay, Amber, this week's winner is Lamarck Flowers. He's 24 years old. He's wanted for vehicle theft and fraud. Well, all I can say is that if your brain came up with the big wheel of fish, then you need some therapy. <laughs> well, <laughs> well I, I slightly stole that idea. If anybody is a weird Al Yankovic fan, you might know where I've uh, got that idea from. <laughs> all right, so that's slightly less disturbing. <laughs> And that just about wraps things up in a pretty bow for this week's bundle of facts and fun about the TV industry. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Acast, Podcast Addict, Pocket Casts, Overcast, Castbox, and many other combinations of the word pod and cast. Uh, do subscribe on your app of choice, why don't you? And if you want to get in touch, you can always do so on Twitter via the handle at TV show podcast. Or if you want to type more than three words, then email's good too. Our address is contact at TV show and tell.com. Until next time, I've been David Bodicum. And I've been Justin Scrocky. And this has been TV show and tell. Like Amber and I always say, crime doesn't pay, but we do. do.